You know the secrets of making friends? They are so simple and easy. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew interview episode. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we are interviewing Larry Millett, the author of Sherlock Holmes and the Eisendorf Enigma. Yes, this is a very special episode, our first interview with an author. We're very excited to have him on. Let me tell you a little about Larry first. He's a native of Minneapolis. He holds a bachelor's degree in English from St. John's University and a master's from the University of Chicago. He spent much of his career as a writer, reporter, and editor for the St. Paul Pioneer Press. He's the author of 20 books, including 12 history books and 8 mystery novels. From history to mystery. <laughs> yes. And the novels are mostly set in Minnesota, featuring Sherlock Holmes and St. Paul detective Shadwell Rafferty. A longtime reporter and architectural critic for the St. Paul Pioneer Press, Millet is also the author of numerous books on architecture. But today, we're talking about his book, Sherlock Holmes and the Eisendorf Enigma. So a quick description of this book. Sherlock Holmes is preparing to leave Minnesota and return to England when a note slips under his hotel room door from a vicious murderer he'd nearly captured in Munich in 1892, announcing his relocation to Eisendorf, a tiny village near Rochester, Minnesota. Holmes must match wits with a fiendish opponent who taunts him right up to a final explosive confrontation. Larry sent Christina and myself the hardcover book, and I beat Christina in reading it. This was our first advanced copy of a book. Very exciting. You all know how I feel about books, and I can't get enough. So that's how amazing this book was. Jason couldn't <laughs> put it down. Yeah, I really enjoyed the book. I was concerned in the beginning because this is an older Sherlock who is not in the best of health. He has emphysema. As a result, he has to quit smoking, and we know that Sherlock has his crutches. And for him to solve the hardest of cases, he has to have his tobacco with him and sometimes some other hard drugs. It's a two-pipe problem. But I quickly, yes, it's a two-pipe problem. But I quickly loved this whole part because it added another level to Sherlock. He was more human. He was more relatable. And his struggles felt real. Yes, it's no spoilers to tell you right off the bat. We do learn this is a different kind of Sherlock. He's, later in life, he's been a bit isolated from everyone. And he's traveled to Minnesota to the Mayo Clinic in order to kind of try to resolve these issues when a new case presents itself and breathes new life back into him. Very exciting. What's really cool too is even if you haven't read Larry Millett's previous books, you could just jump right in on this. It's sort of a standalone story, although we do highly recommend that you go check out his other Sherlock books as well. We think you'll really like them. If you want to learn more about this book, see the table of contents and hear a little bit about it, how you can purchase it, you can go to the book's webpage, which is upress.umn.edu. And we'll also put that link for you onto the Coffee Clutch Crew website. Alan Eskins, author of The Life We Bury, says, Larry Millett breathes new life into the classic character of Sherlock Holmes in this intriguing, homegrown mystery. Sherlock Holmes and the Eisendorf Enigma is both elegant and entertaining. You know, we love this book so much, we were thinking about doing a book review. And what I think we'll do is we'll give our listeners the time to get the book and read it. And if you guys ask for it, we definitely will put an episode out there reviewing Sherlock Holmes and the Eisendorf Enigma. 
I do have to warn you that at some points during the interview, we get into some spoiler questions, but we will give you the heads up before we go into that. And there's plenty of other great information. We think you're going to really enjoy it. Christina, at first I was kind of nervous and I think it will be reflective in the way I speak to him. But then I think we found the groove and I was able to balance myself. He was so natural talking to us. I felt like, you know, real quick, it felt like just a normal conversation with him. Absolutely. He was even preempting our next questions. We went over some general questions about him as an author, how he got into Sherlock, what it's like trying to translate a cultural icon, the research he does for his books, setting real-life events against the backdrops of his mystery stories, and of course, some more in-depth questions about the Isendorf Enigma. We were having so much fun. I think we told him a half-hour interview and ended up going an hour. So Larry, I'm sorry about that. If you like this episode... Definitely check out our Sherlock review episodes. And if you're listening to us from that channel, go on to the Coffee Clash Crew main channel where we have TV reviews about The Magicians, Game of Thrones, which is coming up the new season. So we'll be doing that soon. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at CKC Podcast and keep a lookout for more interviews just like this and more TV show reviews. And also for more information on Larry, including his books and news and events that are coming up for him in the future, you can visit his website at LarryMillet.com. That's L-A-R-R-Y-M-I-L-L-E-T-T. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the show. First of all, thank you for sending us your book. We really enjoyed it. It was amazing. This was my first Sherlock book that I've read. Oh, really? Since I was a child. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) When I was very young, I made the mistake of reading an adult Sherlock book when it was above what I could read. So it was too difficult for me to read. And then it's one of those things as you grow into an adult, you don't put two and two together like, oh, I'm smarter now and I can read it. I always just said in my head, oh, those are too difficult for me to read. I think I actually had the same experience and I am an avid reader, but I never went back to Sherlock until I was an adult and I still haven't read any of the Arthur Conan Doyle stories, which probably makes me sound terrible, but we got very familiar with Sherlock through pop culture, movies, other renditions and we, the BBC we, TV yeah, show. we started with the BBC doing the podcast on it. You definitely got me hooked on Sherlock Holmes books, and I will be reading your other uh, Sherlock Holmes books. Good, good. Make sure you buy them as well. <laughs> Absolutely. No, we will. Will do, and we'll spread the word to all of our listeners. It's probably a generic question, and we'll try not to do too many of those, but what first drew you to Sherlock? Well, I, uh, like a lot of people, as you were saying, I had read them as a kid, and I was a pretty sophisticated reader as a kid at an early age. So probably by the time I was about 10 or so, I was getting into at least some of the stories. I used to read Dickens and stuff like that. I like the English writers. So I started reading as a kid, kind of probably by the time I was 15, I had torn through the whole canon, which is 56 stories and four novels. So I'd always been interested in that. About 20 years ago, actually, my first book came out, my first Sherlock came out in 1996. I had been casting about um, to do an historic mystery novel. I I had been writing architecture books before then, but I was interested in writing fiction. I was a newspaper reporter for many years. And so I cast about for a story to do a historic novel. And somewhere along the line, the idea uh, came in that maybe I could incorporate Sherlock Holmes into uh, 
uh, work of uh, historic mystery. And other writers had done that. I wasn't inventing anything. At the time, I happened to live um, in a house in St. Paul that overlooked Baker Street. That's the name of the street in St. Paul. So yeah. I thought maybe there's some kismet here, some <laughs> some fate <laughs> that I have to do that. So I, I went out and did some research, kind of figured out where Sherlock was at various times historically within the canon of stories that Conan Doyle wrote, and then decided that I could do my first novel set in 1894 in Minnesota at a time when Sherlock was available. And so the first book was actually about a famous forest fire in Minnesota, the Hinkley Forest Fire that killed over 400 people. Mm -hmm. And I brought in Sherlock to investigate the arsonist behind it. And that was the first of the series. And then I did five Sherlocks, I think in six years or seven years. And then I kind of dropped it for a while and got into uh, going back to doing some of my architecture stuff. But the Eisendorf Enigma is the first sort of full-bore Sherlock I've done in about 13 years. I have other characters that I also write mystery fiction about, and Sherlock was in a couple of books but wasn't featured in those books. And this is the first one that's really featured him in quite a while. That's amazing. I can't even imagine tackling such a character as Sherlock. We did some research, obviously, when we first started doing the podcast, and I knew that he was a cultural icon, but... Thousands of written tales, over 200 films have been made about him. I mean, it spans 100 years. What is it like tackling his character? Do other renditions of Sherlock, the way people have written and portrayed him, affect the way you write him? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've read quite a few of the pastiches, and, and they're they're sort of all over the place. There are versions that are not very good. There are some that are, are pretty good. There are some that are very, very almost clinically faithful to the Conan Doyle. Hmm. I wanted to be reasonably faithful to the character, but I wanted to maybe open him up a little bit and, and certainly put him in a new setting. He had not. <laughs> the idea of bringing Sherlock to Minnesota isn't one that's very intuitive. Uh, but um, it turned out that I had some people here in Minnesota, historic figures who had a lot of connections to England and a lot of money. And, were able, you know, and I was able to kind of set up a, uh, a situation where it didn't seem too far fetched that he could have, you know, come here. It wasn't a huge. I mean, it was about um, the first book was set in 1894. It was about a nine day trip. You know, you go across the Atlantic uh, on the on the ocean liner, and that's about seven days, and it's just a day and a half or so by rail from New York. Then, so it, the the travel part wasn't that bad, and I sort of, you know, had a very rich man here named James J. Hill, who was the founder of the Great Northern Railroad one of the richest men in the country. And I had him as the guy who would, was hiring Holmes to do these investigations. And so that's kind of how I managed to get a reasonable backstory to, to get him there. You know, it's it's a very well-explored character, but it's interesting. There are a lot of connections to Minnesota. Surprising, the largest uh, Sherlock collection in the world of Sherlock material, Sherlockiana uh, stories books, uh, collections, um, playbills, all that stuff is at the University of Minnesota Libraries. Oh, wow. Biggest collection in the world. And the guy who wrote one of the most famous books, um, the annotated Sherlock Holmes, which was a big annotated edition that came out quite a few years ago, was from Minneapolis. (laughs) So, you know, I was like, well, I might as well join the crew here and uh, actually bring him to Minnesota for, for some adventures. So, That's kind of what I decided to do. 
That's amazing. I was thinking the whole time reading it, I wonder how much of this comes from your knowledge of, of writing what you know and, and living in that area and how much of it came from research because it, right. it did feel so natural, his setting and the backdrop. I was just down at the mayor, uh, well, at, in Rochester, Minnesota, uh, last week speaking to um, a group down there in one of the original houses of one of the original Mayo doctors. Um, and uh, speaking about the book and about you know his connections to Rochester. I know that area pretty well, and I've done a lot of research over the years for my history books, so I have a lot of background built in uh, about Minnesota and Minnesota people here and sort of the background here. The town of Eisendorf is actually modeled very loosely on a, a city in, in um, Minnesota called New Ulm, believe it or not, New Ulm, which was at one time the most German city uh, in the United States. It was literally 100% German, oh, founded wow. by um, a group of, much like Eisendorf, founded by a group of um, German settlers who formed a company and came over on Moss and established a town, and it was, it was all German. So I kind of had that idea as something that would make for sort of a, an interesting, odd, unusual background to have him go into this very isolated, strange little town and, and discover that there was a, a murderer living there that he had encountered years before. Yeah, that's perfect. We were going to ask you <laughs> where, you, where, you where the town of Eisendorf came from. In advance, yeah. Uh, but that was kind of the, the derivation of it. And I've, I've said a lot of my books have been set against real events. The first one was uh, the Hinckley Forest Fire of 1894. Um, I set one at a St. Paul Winter Carnival with uh, an ice palace. Uh, I set one um, involving a famous artifact here called the Kensington Runestone, which supposedly was left by Vikings in the 1300s, if you care to believe wow. that. Um, so I've, I've tried to put real situations, real historic events, and then bring him in there uh, to investigate, you know, uh, usually a made-up crime, but in some cases, almost real events. You know, you bring up isolation with Eisendorf. And Sherlock, I think, is a pretty isolated uh, human being because of how smart he is and he feels like no one can be in. But I think that's compounded with the older Sherlock, which is the yeah. Sherlock we get to see now. He's 66. Yeah. He has emphysema. He yeah. doesn't feel like the man he used to be. Yeah. And a lot of people don't, I mean, people don't like that idea of Sherlock getting old. Um, and you know, the Conan Doyle stories, the original stories all involve the younger Sherlock. There are no real old Sherlock Holmes stories that he, that he wrote. And there aren't a whole lot of them, as far as I know, in the secondary literature, the pastiches and whatnot. You, you know, you, there was the movie Mr. Holmes that came out, I think it was last year, and picturing him as very, very old, I think over 90. But most of the pastiches and stories set him in a much younger age or sort of in full flower. And I wanted to try a little experiment and uh, make him an older man and try to imagine what he might have been like and whether he was having any regrets or second thoughts as older people do. You know, so that was kind of the idea, and also to put him alone. Uh, there are people who don't like the fact that if you have Sherlock, you have to have Watson with him the whole time, and and I understand that. But um, for this particular story, I thought it was important that he be kind of on his own for a while and wrestling with some of these issues. At the same time, he's trying to solve this very 
uh, strange murder case in this very strange place. And you, you could really feel that too, because alone, almost the smoking, mm-hmm. the pipe had become a companion of his. So he's losing oh, yeah. a partner in that as well. He was a serious tobacco addict, no question about yeah, it. That's right. <laughs> Back to the days when you could smoke safely, apparently. No one, <laughs> uh, you know, but yeah, he was, he was a big smoker. And, uh, you know, he faced difficulty that all of us ex-smokers face is you have to stop at some point. And how do you, how do you do that? Yeah, especially, you know, he's doing cold turkey and he's having one of the harder cases of his life. Yeah. And he can't yeah. lean on, he can't lean on Watson and he can't lean on his tobacco. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's kind of out there, and um, it's a challenge for him, and especially in that setting. The town is really deliberately depicted as being very, very isolated. And there are little towns like that down in southeastern Minnesota, which is a different topography from most of the state. It's actually full of these little valleys that are heavily wooded and um, kind of kind of drop down from the plains into these little places, and they, they just feel very out of the way, and that's kind of the, the sensation I wanted to create. I was remiss when I was reading it. I was like, oh, no, not the Sherlock I love, you know? But then as I started reading it, I started to realize, wow, there's so much more now I can pull from Sherlock. He's not that perfect guy who's so smart, has his mind palace and everything. You know, he can do anything. I actually had moments where I was like, I don't know if he can do this, you know? And it made you relate to him more. He became more human because he was dealing with all of that. Yeah, and and you know the the BBC series is um, kind of uh, Sherlock taken to the extreme in a sense, and I wanted to get him back a little more of his humanity back and and make him not quite so an extreme a person. I don't quite envision him, you know, the way he is in that BBC series. It's very well done. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think, don't you think it got a little out of hand the last year? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just, my, just my opinion, but. Um, but, uh, you know, an excellent series and certainly one that had a lot of fun with the historic cases and updating them and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, the thinking machine, Sherlock, which is what we kind of envision, um, isn't the entire story, I don't think, with, you know, with him or with anybody. And I think of Conan Doyle, I, I've often thought it would have been interesting if Conan Doyle had tried to put him in older age, what he might have done. But I think he was almost a... You know, he became, as as writers sometimes do, a prisoner of the character. And it's hard to to jump out of it once that's happened to you. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, I think Moffat right now, he got so big. He had the Sherlock series. He had Doctor Who. And I yeah. saw his writing in Doctor Who kind of get out of hand as well. I think he, and this is his last year with Doctor Who, I think he needed to step back a little bit and kind of like, replenish those juices that he has well sometimes you know i mean he's a very talented guy obviously and and um you know sometimes you're become too clever for your own good (laughs) (laughs) it can happen so and in that case i think the last year of sherlock uh the last series uh that i saw anyway that was almost too clever for its own good and and it got kind of confusing i think a little over the top i still am very fond of the jeremy brett version of sherlock that was done by Masterpiece Theater on public television back mm. whenever it was, 80s, 90s. And I still like the old Basil Rathbone version, um, even though it's not particularly accurate in terms of the stories. You know, he still, I think, is, for a lot of us of my generation, still kind of the Sherlock. But there's been a lot of Sherlocks. Uh, I, oh, yeah. I, I made a point of trying to watch all of the Sherlock movies, and there have been a lot of them with different people playing Sherlock, so it's always interesting to see 
you know, and he sometimes played for fun, sometimes played very seriously. He's one of those characters who um, encompasses a big range. He's so so well known. Uh, I mean, he's a, the best known literary character in English, I think. Maybe he and Hamlet would be the two. And he's known around the world. When you go to the Sherlock collection at the University of Minnesota Libraries, you'll find editions of Sherlock Holmes stories literally in languages you've never heard of. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about very small, fairly obscure languages, and there are editions of the home stories in those languages. Um, and then you're like, wow, <laughs> this guy traveled the whole world. Quite yeah. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty amazing. To bring you back to Eisendorf. Yes. This library of such, uh, where they document... The archives. Yeah, the archives, where they document everything that happens in Eisendorf. What gave you that idea? Is there something in life that's similar to that? No, I, I you know, the, the um, I'm kind of a secret librarian at heart, as probably a lot of writers are. And I, and I it was just sort of a, a conceit that, that this town, because it was founded by this very cohesive group that, uh, and a very well-educated group because they were free thinkers, in the, which in those days were basically atheists. That's why the town doesn't have a church. Mm-hmm. Um, that they would substitute perhaps knowledge for religion. Yeah. Uh, and so um, the library, the, it is sort of like a municipal library with these, with these annals and collections, um, was a way to sort of convey some of the unusual nature of, of the city uh, the community, the town, and and to also have um, the, the character of the uh, of the archivist uh, was uh, sort of maybe telling the truth and maybe not as, <laughs> as the book develops. So that kind of was just a, a fun little detail. I'm not sure where the idea for it came from, but pretty early on, I actually have all the relatives on my mother's side are completely German and. My grandparents are buried not too far from where the action in the book takes place, and I actually have relatives named Hallbach somewhere in the mother's side of the family. So I did, and actually I also have some Krupps in there, believe it or not. So I was picking out some old family names there and, and throwing them in just for, the, just for the fun of it. Speaking of names, what's the name we couldn't figure out how to yeah, pronounce? Yeah, we've, we've been saying we have to ask you the correct pronunciation of the founder Dionysius, Dionysius. Dionysius, yep. Dionysius. Dionysius. Yeah, Dionysius, just like the Greek god, but spelled a little bit differently. Okay. That, that, that was actually a fairly, um, I did a lot of, names are important in books, as you can imagine. I actually have a family history that uh, I had an aunt long dead, a nun, who did this elaborate genealogy of my mother's side of the family. All the Germans, they're all German farmers. They came here, they farmed. Uh, and But there were Dionysiuses among them. It was a pretty common name uh, among Germans for some reason at the time. And I thought it just, it, it also conveyed, we think of the Greek god Dionysius and, you know, the god of love and and revelry and sex and all that stuff. You know, we, we learn as time goes on that Dionysius's name kind of describes him because he was chasing all the women in town. That's true, yeah. Yeah. I, and, and, you know, anything about it, I mean, it's the, the, the town is sort of a cult town. If you read the history of cults, the one thing that the guys who had the cults usually do is they – I swear to God, half half are just for the sex. I mean, you know, they may God, they may not, but it's like a way to attract women. And I mean, you know, that's just so that became part of the tale as well. Yeah, even uh, the uh, yoga, that popular yoga. 
Yeah, yeah. Yoga yeah. master, he's pretty much doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah. and you know, all these uh, various sects, they seem like they all have that kind of character. There's some female, female-headed sex that, uh, sects that also seem to even qualify in that regard. So, who knows? <laughs> I was thinking about Eisendorf from the very first time we're introduced to it, and I'm a very visual reader. If I can't picture what's being described to me, I, I kind of start to lose the thread of the book. And I was immediately set in Eisendorf. I could picture myself there <laughs> walking through the town. But this became particularly poignant for me very late in the book, too. It's chapter 18. And now I know we're going to get a little into spoiler territory, so we might filter some of this out later. But Watson goes to Eisendorf, and it's the mm-hmm. first time that he's seeing it. And the way he describes it... Read it. I love, it, I love this. Uh, well, he, <laughs> this is probably now we're quoting his own book to him. But, <laughs> but he's talking about uh, the day was cool and damp, the sun gone into hiding, and spectral wisps of fog sailed across the open countryside outside of town. By the time we reached Eisendorf, the fog had become oppressive, clamped over the village like a heavy gray shroud. It's so perfectly conveyed to me that Watson gets it. He, he understands the feeling of the town now and, and what it's about there, what Holmes has had to deal with while he's there the entire time. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, being from Minnesota, everybody in Minnesota is obsessed with the weather. So mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> fog has been a literary device for a long time. Um, great opening of Bleak House with its description of the fog in London is perhaps probably the most famous uh, fog depiction in literature, but it was just a way of Watson getting the feel of the place, that it's closed in, it's it's tight, it's uh, hard to figure out what's actually going on. You know, there's this veneer of civility and whatnot, but there's there's things happening beneath the surface, as, you know, in, in most mystery novels. And think of all those cozy English mystery novels where you have the little town, everything looks perfect, and then, you know, it's, <laughs> there's murderous people afoot everywhere. Um doing bad things. So that was just a, a way of trying to establish a little bit of a mood um, as we're going along here. And it really did. Now, Christina and myself, uh, we met in undergrad. We're both artists. So we, we met in... Uh... As is my wife. We have lots of art all around our house. Yeah, oh, nice. same here. Same here. We yeah. met in Foundations, which is like art boot camp. Um, uh, sure. So we're visual with everything, and your book did a great job painting the picture for us. Uh, I, I as well get lost. If I can't put in my head all the details, that's when I start to think I'm doing wrong, and I get worried. So knowing that people interpret information differently, how important is it, or even how difficult is it, to find the right words to get a scene or location to look the way you imagined it into the reader's mind? Well, I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, that's one of the challenges of writing all the time. And the challenge is finding the right words. That's always the challenge. Every sentence is that challenge. But it's it's also a matter of finding the right balance. Um, mystery novels, you don't want to dawdle too long. I mean, if you're writing a serious literary fiction, then you might have a full-page description of somebody's tongue, you know? <laughs> Um, but I'm not writing literary fiction, I'm writing mystery fiction, and so I want to get to things fairly quickly. Uh, one of the things I was uh, very concerned about was the opening of the book, which is pretty complicated, actually, a lot of different things going back and forth, and I, I kind of compressed that all that in quickly into one chapter to try to jumpstart the book. 
And then you want to get detail in there. You want to get those little touches, the telling details, but you don't want to go overboard. You know, that's always the trick uh, for any writer is, is getting it, it's what you put in, but also what you leave out. I always tell people the great Gatsby is only 49,000 words, but 49,000 really good words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. So I live about a mile from where Fitzgerald was born. So uh, maybe, uh, I would like to think that uh, some of that rained down on me. I don't think it did, but he was a, a big St. Paul guy and, a, and uh, certainly one of the writers that I greatly admire. Was that the reason that you switched towards the end of the book to Watson's perspective? Because I thought this was so clever that when we're hearing from Sherlock, the majority of the book, he's able to be a lot more descriptive and it's almost like getting his inner monologue, what the town is like. But then you, you go over to Watson and we start getting that quicker kind of crescendo of events. Yeah. And, and definitely in, you know, the, there are, I think three, of the original stories that are not narrated by Watson. And I think um, Holmes might narrate one or two. I can't remember. But once you get the outside narrator introduced, then you can't get into the, the character's mind as much. The other reason was it's harder with sometimes with an outside narrator to get the action the way you want it. Whereas if you're sticking right on Sherlock, you can stay close to him, see what he sees, feel what he feels uh, in a way that is a little more difficult when Watson is on the outside telling the tale. But once we they, they get back together and we're kind of going toward the denouement of the story, then it's nice to have him tell the tale. Although, you know, Sherlock also tells part of the tale at the end himself because Watson doesn't go along. So there are actually three, sort of three different narrations. There's Omniscient, there's Watson, and then there's Holmes himself. And I originally set out to do that just the way the story developed. It seemed to make sense to do it that way. Uh, my other ones, uh, the other major Sherlockians are all told pretty much by Watson in the standard fashion. I like it though. It was a nice mix. Oh, absolutely. Let me ask, is your, is your wife the first editor? <laughs> <laughs> yes, she is. She was, a is a very fine writer, but also, um, was a magazine writer and a magazine editor for years. Uh, edited Minnesota monthly magazine among several others. She's a copy editor, among other things. So, yes, I run everything once I get it done by her for copy editing. But also, you know, does the story seem to make sense? Are there holes here and there? And then then it goes to the other editors and they do their thing and uh, out you go. But uh, this book came through pretty much as written. There wasn't a whole lot of changing going on in the editing. I like to think I know pretty well what I'm doing by this stage. So it's mostly just, you know, you'll forget something or you'll, there'll be uh, an inconsistency somewhere. And those are the kind of things that you desperately want good editors to find. And you see it all the time. I try to get things right, but I make mistakes. And it seems like today books aren't edited as tightly as they used to be. And so you'll, uh, I've got mystery novels where I'll, you know, pick up on page 10, the, the woman is blonde, and on page 15, she's redheaded, you know, because somebody just wasn't – and I don't blame it on the writers because when you're writing a book, you go back and forth, back and forth, and it's very easy to lose your way in terms of the specifics of the detail. But that's what good editing uh, should catch, and, and, and good editing does. So no major plot points, though, that were left on the table from this one? No, it wasn't – it was – pretty straightforward and the book as written was pretty much what you see just some you know the usual editing changes words here words there 
the basic format of the book didn't change. The time structure didn't change. There, I think, was one couple issues with that opening of the book moved back and forth so much that one of my editors actually got confused and, and made a mistake editing it. And then I had to go back and say, no, no, actually this isn't. <laughs> you know? so, uh, those type of things happen, but they have good editors at the university of Minnesota press and, um, they do a nice job of, uh, you know, getting the book out and I'm, I'm very happy with it. My son did the map on the front page. He's a cartographer. So oh, nice. kept that in the family as well. I referred to that many times yeah. when I was trying to look. Yeah, I, I like to have maps. I, I have maps in quite a few of my Sherlock's, and um, I do like to do that if, just because it, it helps orient readers. I'm a urban history guy, so my books, most of my books play, take place in cities and urban areas, not all of them. But if I'm doing that, I like to, I like to have a map that kind of orients people, if yeah. at all possible. And it did. It definitely did. Yeah, I think it was helpful for this book. Is there any this is a this is probably a bad question. Is there any of all the books you've written, is there something that you remember that you wrote down that was cut out, but you still like you knew the reason why it was cut out, but there's still something inside of you that really wishes you you had that out there? Well, I've had some, you know, I I wrote a book called uh, Sherlock Holmes and the Secret Alliance and I wrote it originally uh, actually as a, a book almost exclusively featuring my other character, Shadwell Rafferty, who appeared mm-hmm. you know, briefly in this book, but he's a major player in some of the other books. And I told my editors I was going to do it that way. And then when the book, when they got their hands on, I said, well, there's not enough Sherlock. And I said, well, I told you there wasn't. You know, so then I had to do some real backpedaling and that kind of, messed up the book, I think. Uh, I mean, it's, it's okay, but I wish it hadn't happened that way. Uh, um, so those things do occur, unfortunately. Um, and that was probably the, the one case where I ran into some real trouble with editing. And I wish kind of, I had the original book back cause I think it might've been better than the version that got, uh, sort of pasted together to get more Sherlock. In it. Mm. Push it out now and, and write director's cut. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 You'll make a yeah. ton of money. <laughs> It's sitting around somewhere, the original version. Uh, who knows? Maybe one day I will. That'd be fun. Yeah. Be the original, the, the untold story. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. Untold story. Yeah. Christina's writing a book. Oh, geez. I'm just bringing it up. <laughs> it's, she's having fun with it. And uh, it's a fantasy book. We really love fantasy. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the shows we do with this podcast, we do uh, TV show reviews and movie reviews. And they end up oftentimes being a fantasy yeah. kind of book or, um, sorry, show. So she's having fun. But I see her, when you say you go back and forth from the beginning to the end of the book to the middle of the book, I see her doing that. And she draws mental maps and mental webs to keep herself involved as well. But I see that you can have all these ideas in your head and the, it's the fill that you can get lost and sometimes lose these ending ideas. And it's kind of scary yeah, well, it's hard to just sit down and write. I'm always going back to something that happened before, going forward. Does this make sense? I have to literally, I stopped using the computer and I forced myself to sit down with a journal and a fountain pen so that I would just write and not continue to go back. Well, most writers, I think, I mean, every writer is different in terms of how they, how they put their books together. Um, I write a lot about great deal about architecture and so I'm I kind of 
tend to think in my books as architecture and you are building the pieces up. You have to start with an idea, a vision of what that structure is going to be and a general sense of how the bones of the book are going to fit together. But then there's lots of room, lots of room for, you know, what is, what does the interior look like? What are the, uh, what's the decor and who are the characters and all that stuff. Uh, that all gets built into the architecture of the book, but I, uh, I look upon it as kind of building a thing. And then when it's built to your satisfaction, you've got a book and then you, you go on to the next one. But I've been writing for a long time. I've been doing this for I've been writing all my life, so one thing that happens as you get older as a writer is you tend to get more efficient, mm-hmm. you know, what not to waste your time on, because, um, and you know what to leave out, and that's, that's the most yeah. important lesson. You, you begin to understand what to leave out and how to focus on what you're doing, and that makes it easier to, to write a book, just kind of reaching that age where you kind of know how it all fits together. Yeah. Hey, uh, out of, this is a question out of nowhere, but this might be a fun project for you. You ever think of doing like starting a blog, but the blog is off of Dr. Watson and his blog and kind of having like mini stories monthly or weekly? Well, my, my take on that is his blog is writing for nothing, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'm uh, I make my living writing, and I've never been real enthusiastic about blogging because it doesn't pay. I write a lot of articles, I do other things, but I'm you know it's what I do to make money. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's what writers do. Uh, so I never got into blogging in a big way because it just doesn't for me. It just doesn't pay, and I'm not at the stage in my life where I feel like I'm compelled to get myself out to the world and say here I am. You know, it's like. <laughs> yeah, nothing's blogging there's some wonderful blogs out there but it's it's um you know at, at my stage of the game it's probably not something i get into no i understand i've written a few little blog entries for this and that but uh and maybe when i retire i'll start writing a blog on something or other when i'm past making any money <laughs> well, then, then you'll have to come back on here and tell us about it uh, you know, I tell you about my blogging career but um you know i'm getting down to the end of my career i'll be 70 and uh July and you know there's a limited number of I'm working on another architecture book right now and that'll be hopefully done at the end of this year and then maybe one or two more Sherlock's Rafferty's probably not a whole lot more um, and that'll kind of be that'll kind of be it I think I am writing some short stories too I like writing short stories so I've been doing a few of those as well um, but there's no that is sort of like blogging because yeah. there's no money in it. <laughs> so that's kind of my fun. That is kind of my blogging. Of course, you could say is writing a short story. It's just um, um, just for the fun of it. You know? Yeah. And I had a couple published, and they give you like a couple hundred dollars and say, "Here you go." So okay, fine. Yeah. So I'm also writing a column now for the local uh, Minneapolis Tribune uh, architecture column. I do once a month. Uh, Lost uh, Lost Twin Cities. Yes. Lost Twin Cities, yeah, and I wrote me yeah, on the book Lost Twin Cities that uh, came out quite a few years ago, and mm-hmm. uh, just doing that is just kind of a fun thing to do. Uh, I've got a lot of research that's just sitting here, I might as well use some of it and write a little newspaper story. But I wrote, I was a newspaper reporter for 30 years, so, you know, did a lot of that kind of stuff. Well, speaking of Lost Twin Cities, you have said, uh, to me, cities are structures in time. They are very rich, dynamic human creations, and architecture and buildings are doors into history, the people as well as the places. I think that was beautiful. So the Lost Twin Cities, basically you have the ability now 
monthly, you have all these notes, all the work you have done already. And now you have this uh, tool to get them out monthly. Can you explain to us, to people that haven't read the book, what it would be about? The column, you mean? Yes, mm-hmm. please. Yeah, yeah. No, I, um, uh, well, you know, there's been uh, Lost Twin Cities came out in uh, 1992, I think. Uh, and there have been a lot of quote unquote lost books and they're, and they're books mostly about, uh, people don't realize that, uh, how vastly cities, particularly downtowns change over time in the United States. And so there's just this whole body of wonderful old buildings and places that just vanish. They get torn down, they burn down, whatever. And so I just find it interesting. It, 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 there's no great redeeming moral value in it, but, but it's interesting if you're from a place, wherever it is, where, where are you guys from? You're from, uh, New York. Long New York. Island. You know, well, yeah, and there's a couple of lost New York books. Um, my second wife was from New York, and my still has an apartment there. So I spent a lot of time in New York. But there's, um, in, in a city like New York, there's a vast number of buildings that are gone and, and whole districts that are gone in Manhattan, you know, mansion districts, you name it. And you start looking at those, and it just becomes kind of interesting, not just for the architecture, but you find all these wonderful stories about the people who live there and and how, they're, how they did things. And so that's what Lost Twin Cities was about, and that's what I do in my column. Here's the, I just did my last column. I'll show it here. You probably can't see it, but I did it on uh, Lost Row Houses. In oh, the wow. Cool. Uh, and, you know, row houses are very common out east, but they weren't as common here. And, and I just looked at my research and said, there are 100 row houses in Minneapolis, downtown Minneapolis at one time that are gone. <laughs> been yeah. torn down, uh, and some of them were quite spectacular. So here, let's take a look at one of those. And we'll and it was built by a doctor, and the doctor's father built the steamboat Robert E. Lee, the famous Mississippi River steamboat. And he was an interesting character. And you start digging into these things, and you always find these really fascinating connections between uh, uh, not only what's happening here, but you know, people who had connections to other places. And pretty soon, you're into storytelling. That's really what. My lost stuff is it's kind of just storytelling about uh, interesting things in our history. So that's beautiful. It's not just about the architecture. It's about the story behind the architecture. Yeah. I did for Lost Twin Cities, I did uh, what I call building biographies. And we take a particular building and then you talk about the building and the architect and the usual kind of stuff. But I didn't spend a lot. I don't spend a lot of time. I'm an architectural historian, but most work by architectural historians will put you to sleep because it's very difficult. <laughs> that's fine. I, I read those books because I'm interested, but if you're not, but you you start looking at these buildings and you see all these stories. I'm, my new book is on uh, actually history of the building that's on the cover of Lost Twin Cities, the most famous lost building in Minnesota. It was called the Metropolitan Building and it was a gorgeous building and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, uh, but the story behind it is just crazy. The guy who built it was maybe ran one of the largest Ponzi schemes in American history. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then it got torn down for no good reason whatsoever for reasons that are somewhat suspicious. And, and the whole kind of history of the city is in, in some ways kind of encapsulated in this building. And, and that's kind of how it works. Buildings are big containers of, of memory and, and story and legend and lore. And so I just use those buildings as kind of my entree into the, to tell a story. And that's kind of the way I do it. This is probably going to sound like a very loose association, but the way you're describing this, have you read the book New York 2140? 
I have not. It's it's relatively new. Um, f- flash forward to <clears throat> a New York that has sunk. It's basically partially oh. underwater. Yeah. And the way, though, that they're interweaving the description of the buildings and some of them being lost with people's stories and backgrounds, it just made me think of that. It, you know, I, I have mixed feelings on the book itself, but... <laughs> uh, well, who knows? Uh, yeah, I mean, the one thing you learn about cities is that uh, if you study them at all, especially American cities, is that they're intensely Darwinian creations in some sense. They, they sort of evolve the way species do and, and it's very hard to figure out where they're going to go next mm. what's going to happen next and all these unknowns and so coming back to new york in 2140 what will it look like i don't know twin <laughs> city the well we're above sea level or high enough <laughs> we might still be there it will be in the banana belt by then thank god and you know everybody's coming here for their winter vacations which does not occur Right now, it doesn't seem like. So, oh, it has gotten a lot warmer here in the last 20 years by Minnesota standards. So uh, cities are really interesting places, and that's why I've always kind of written about them. And uh, I grew up in Minneapolis and then made the big move to St. Paul, so (laughs) all the way across the river. So I've always kind of been interested in cities and and written about them. And uh, that sounds like a good book. I, I would be interested in that. I'll look it up online. In 1985, you were the newspaper's first architecture critic, right? We're Personal. testing you on your. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I was. Yeah, the Pioneer Press. Yeah, in St. Paul. Yeah, I just wanted to do that. Uh, no one else was doing it, and I thought it'd be fun. I was interested. Uh, as soon as I left the paper, that disappeared. There aren't, aren't many, not many papers anymore have architecture critics. New York Times does, and a few others do. Chicago papers, but. That was kind of a thing in the 80s. A lot of papers were sort of flush, and they were bringing in, in addition to art critics and all that stuff, they were having people talk about architecture. So I did that for off and on. I was never a full-time critic. I just I also was a feature writer and whatnot, but I would sneak in stuff about architecture whenever I could. So you have uh, – we don't want to keep you too much longer. Thank you so much for spending your Friday night with us. We do yeah. appreciate it. Something I have to ask, though, <laughs> speaking of what's coming next, so again, we're getting a little bit into the spoiler territory, but I have to bring up the epilogue uh, yes. to this yeah. book. Um, you break my heart. <laughs> <laughs> were, were you trying to wrap up Sherlock? What's in, in future for him? Well, the, the epilogue uh, wasn't necessarily a wrapping up of Sherlock. It, it's the... One book I want to do uh, will be called Rafferty's Last Case. Mm-hmm. I've already established when he died. And um, so I want to do a book that begins with his funeral. And I want Sherlock to be in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and he will then be, Rafferty dies in 1928. So Sherlock will be eight years older than he is in um, um, The Ice North Enigma. Uh, so some of that was just sort of looking ahead to that. But I, I like books. There was a lot of truth in that epilogue. That part of Minnesota was – the forests were cut down initially, and they had a lot of problems with uh, flash flooding and all other things you would think of because the hillsides were denuded uh, very early on by settlers. The end of Eisendorf, as I imagine, isn't entirely – out of bounds. Uh, it could have happened that way. Uh, there are flash floods in that part of the state, and they can be very sudden and very violent and very destructive. Um, and and I just thought it was, I don't know. I figured Eisendorf had a, had a kind of go in the, in the end. It was dying anyway. Obviously, it was a town that wasn't going to 
wasn't going to last much longer. And, um, but I, I like the idea of people get, they read a book, they, they, they meet the characters. And I like the idea of kind of just saying, okay, you know, here's where these characters are and here's how they ended up. And, you know, in case of someone like Dr. Plummer, who was a real person, I mean, that's his real, his real death date is in the book. Um, and the other characters, I just sort of said, okay, you know, they're going to be, a lot of them are going to pass on here in the next 10 or 20 years. And that's kind of the way I ended the book. Uh, but also to kind of look forward to the, to the Rafferty's um, last case, which will probably be Sherlock's. I'm sure it'll be, at least from my point of view, Sherlock's last visit to Minnesota. So look for it, 1928. You'll be here right before the crash. <laughs> and could there possibly be a romantic future there for Sherlock and Catherine? There could be, but it probably won't be written by me. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm not sure beyond the Rafferty book, and I'm not sure when I'm going to write that, how many more Sherlock's there there will be. And I, I could, I might go, I might jump forward and do it, uh, an earlier Rafferty book without Sherlock, or I might jump back and do another Sherlock set, you know, in earlier times, mm -hmm. maybe not even Minnesota, or I might jump forward with Sherlock a little more. And then we could have, you know, a, a setting where who knows, maybe, um, he will, uh, find true love. Although I'm not so sure he will. <laughs> I've never played. I'm like most people. I'm not quite sure what his sexual orientation. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. But hard to figure that. yeah. Take your pick. You know, I don't know. You know, I, I don't have any special wisdom on that. <laughs> Although they had a lot of fun with it in the BBC series. <laughs> yes, yeah. they do. Yes, they do. Oh, I thought you were gay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, they, that was kind of fun. They had, they had a lot of fun with it. I don't know. So, Jason, we, we have that. Can we go to that last yeah, question? Let's um, do it. Talking about <clears throat> reviews. Do you read your own book reviews? And if so, how do you deal with the yeah, positive, you, the negative? Oh, I do, you know, because the publisher will send them. Uh, and as you go through more books uh, in your career, and I think they're 20 or something, you, I mean, I look at bad re reviews. There are good, bad reviews, what I call good, bad reviews. Someone may have some things to say about the book that are favorable. And if it's, if it's an interesting review written by someone who's taken the time to read the book and has some criticisms, then I think that's... That's actually a value. I, I, it doesn't bother me. I may may not agree with them, but you know, if if you go online and read the Amazon reviews, which every author admits that they do, or they should admit that they do, they're so all over the place that you're just kind of like, you know, uh, I didn't like it. I liked it. Maybe I liked it. I didn't like this. I didn't like that. I like that. And you know, it's not particularly illuminating one way or the other. So I, I'm not one who's terribly bothered if someone writes a review and there's something in it that's patently wrong in a review, then I'm, I might be a little upset, but if they're just voicing their opinion, you know, have at it, I'm, I'm fine with that. It doesn't, doesn't really bother me. It just kind of sloughs off. That's just me. There are some writers who just get really, really uptight about reviews. And I think if you're, you know, if you're someone trying to build a literary reputation, for example, and you, know, you get a bad review by some famous reviewer, that's got to hurt. You know, it's got to be like a little bit like a knife. But I'm a good friend of John Sanford, the very successful mystery novelist. And, you know, he gets probably 500 reviews for each of his books on, uh, <laughs> on Amazon. And, you know, they will be 
you know, 400 people saying, we love you, John. Then it'll be like, you know, 20 people saying, oh, I hate this book. And, you know, <laughs> I don't think it, I don't think John gets too upset about it. And I don't, uh, I don't either. Uh, that's just part of, you know, you put your work out. I was a, I was a critic for years, uh, an architecture critic and an architect didn't always like being criticized. I understand that. So I, I accept criticism. It's just goes with the territory. And as long as it's not over the top or, or lying or attributing things to me that are patently not true, I, everybody's got an opinion. Yeah. Uh, good with it. Yeah. Well, as we've gotten bigger, you know, when we were smaller, it was all just good reviews because it was people that really, really liked us, that knew right. about us and, and followed right. us. <clears throat> right. Which aren't, you, which aren't particularly helpful. Right. <laughs> right. That's true. We all like our ego stroked a little bit. Of course. Yeah. But as we got bigger, the audience got larger and there's people that probably, you know, would never be into us listening just because of our... Word of mouth. Word of mouth mm-hmm. and, and the stretch that we have. And then they just bash us. And we learned real quick that we have to have thicker skin. It's, and it's difficult, too, with the, the Internet because they just roll in on iTunes and you can't yeah. respond to them. So, <laughs> Yeah, no, and I'm not, a, you know, I'm, I'm of, a, of a generation that to me, you know, I, I, I like the Internet for my, I do a lot of my historic research on it. But I'm not, a, I'm not much for the whole my wife does Facebook and I'm kind of like, okay, but I'm not, I'm not an internet driven person. It just, my generation just isn't that way. I could live without a cell phone tomorrow and people would say, how could you do that? I said, well, I did it for 60 years. You know? <laughs> her, her father, my, my wife's father is 94, wonderful fellow. And he has never used a computer in his life. And my uh, my wife said to him one day, well, Dad, I could get you a little computer and, you know, you get your email and you do this. And he says, I have no use for a computer. And he doesn't. <laughs> and he doesn't. Yeah. He really doesn't. You know, uh, he's, lived, he's lived his life perfectly well and perfectly fine and perfectly happily without a computer, without the Internet, without any of that stuff. And it is possible. Uh, but I, I would miss the Internet dearly if I didn't have it anymore. But I'm really kind of a. Uh, I, I'm not into the, all the social websites and all the, all of those stuff. I'm, I, I use it tremendously for research. It's become an incredible asset if you're a historic research because so many obscure books, thanks to Google or because of Google, have come online that used to be very hard to find and very expensive to purchase. And now you know, they're just sitting there online and they're searchable. Old newspapers are now searchable. That's a huge, huge benefit to researchers. Uh, you can't believe what a big benefit that is because good luck finding something in the, you know, the 1898 Minneapolis Tribune. If you, if you don't have a searchable way of looking at it, it's on microfilm. You're just, and I did that for the lost twin cities. I spent a lot of time paging through microfilms, looking for stuff. Now I can just go online and find the 48 hits for what I'm looking for. So I love the, I love the internet. <laughs> I love the, I love the, 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 uh, the research opportunities it provides and, but uh, yeah, the, the whole thing, uh, the rest of it, I'm, I'm too old for that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. I, I feel like if, if I could do without it, I'd be happier too, but it's such a mixed feeling because now that's a big part of what we do here and how we get the word out at the same time. So Absolutely. And, and I appreciate that. Um, that's, yeah, it's, you know, it's here, it's here to stay. And I want to become one of those, uh, 3000 new guys on Facebook who looks for, I don't know, whatever they look for. (laughs) 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 They just hired to find bad things on Facebook. So I don't know, but no, like I, I have, uh, I'm doing this book on the Metropolitan building and there is a, 
wonderful site that an architect has put up on the building, which has lots of uh, useful information. And I corresponded with some people there. So I think everybody can find things that they like about it. But sometimes the backlash and the nastiness is just really uh, kind of over the top. Yeah, absolutely. Goods and bads. Yeah, yeah. So, Larry, thank you so much for uh, speaking with us. I I wanted to let you know that we had a lot of our clatchers once we told them that we'd be speaking to you and we, we showed them pictures of us reading uh, Sherlock Holmes and the Eisendorf Enigma, they went out and they bought it and they're really What's enjoying that? it as well. They are fine human beings. I always tell people, I don't care if you, if you read my books, but I would like you to buy them. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> no, I'd like you to do both, but uh, that's great to hear. Yeah, I hope that uh, we'll find a few more fans. I, I do have a few fans. I get letters once in a while from England or New Zealand or even Thailand from people who are... Sherlockians. It is a worldwide phenomenon, and the books find their way to corners of the world you never would expect. Well, let me ask you. So people like me, which is a lot of our clatchers, this is our first Larry Millet book. What's the next one we read if we really love this Sherlock Holmes? Well, I would start with the first one, um, Sherlock Holmes and the Red Demon, uh, which kind of um, was my first take on it, and it's the one that goes back for some time, 1894. And if you like that, then I would just kind of follow them chronologically. They're all independent stories. You don't have to read them in order. Probably the most popular of them all uh, in terms of sales and, and response was the second one, Sherlock Holmes uh, and the Ice Palace Murders. Mm. And uh, that one was also made into a play. In fact, the play was done by Jeffrey Hatcher, who wrote the screenplay for Mr. Holmes, the, the Sherlock Holmes movie that oh, came wow. out. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And he's from the Twin Cities, as fate would have it. So this is a great writing area here. There's just a lot of writers, a lot of mystery writers. Uh, I think it's the long winters. We have nothing else to do. We sit around and write because it's too cold to go outside. That's what I would recommend is just start with start with Sherlock Holmes and the Red Demon, which is a pretty good story, uh, kind of an exotic setting in the northern pineries. And um, I think people will, if, if they like this book, they'll, they'll like that one as well and if they if they if they like the red demon they can just keep up keep up with the series they're all in print now from the university of minnesota press but there are also older editions out there older paperback editions and so there's there's a lot of different choices too in terms of um, getting the books perfect well that's a great adventure that we could go on now we we've never actually done book reviews as much as we've wanted to (laughs) we've done uh, TV shows, movies that had source material in books and kind of brought both of them into it. Right. But we're thinking about starting up some that are on book reviews, and this would this certainly be the start. first one that, that we'd love to start with. Yeah, it's a great idea. Well, it's nice talking to both of you, and Thanks. enjoy the rest of your evening, and thank, thank you very you. much, and uh, let me know how things go with the podcast, and send it my way when you can. Absolutely, Absolutely. Larry. Thank you again. It was great again. to meet you. Come, Watson. Come. The game is afoot. This round is on me! Please hang up and try again.